Looking to create your best self, whether it's good for you lifestyle hacks, smarter ways to supplement, or tasty tips to fuel optimal health, Talk Healthy Today provides you the latest research tools and common sense tips you need to get and stay healthy starting today. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I am absolutely in love with doing this podcast. I would be thrilled if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the podcast. Now, on to the show. This podcast is lovingly sponsored by Naropa University. Since 1974, Naropa faculty have been helping students develop their inner awareness and heart-centered motivations. If you or someone you know wants to live a purpose-driven, embodied life in order to change the world, go to naropa.edu. You are ready for Naropa, where experiential learning meets academic rigor, and we are ready for you. naropa.edu. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. If you've listened to the show, you know I have a complex relationship with yoga. My mother forcing me to do it when I was 14 to help my scoliosis when she found out the back brace was uh, not an option anymore. I actually worked with an incredible uh, yoga teacher, Ramanan Patel, who I hear from people are like, oh my gosh, you worked with him? I was 14. I did not appreciate it at all. I was there and it hurt. And I look back and I think, wow, I, I, if my mother had taken the time to explain more, I think she honestly didn't know. I think she thought of it just as a form of exercise. Yet it is so much more. The reason I bring this up is that we're talking with the wonderful Nataraja Kaleo and we're going to be talking about working with intense emotions. Uh, Nataraja is a professor at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, where he helped pioneer both undergraduate and graduate degree programs in yoga studies. He has an extensive background in both yoga studies and psychology. Nataraja, it's so great to have you on. Oh, wonderful to be here. Thank you, Lisa. Such a pleasure. First of all, I've always wanted to go to Boulder. Is it as lovely as they say it is? It It, it is, uh, you know, nested right in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So we have this backdrop of of kind of infinite wilderness. Oh, sounds amazing. I lived in Santa Cruz for many years, and I hear that it's similar in terms of the vibe. I know Santa Cruz has actually changed a lot, but I was there in the 80s, and it was just fabulous. I am, I am actually a banana slug. Me too. Yeah, right on. Woohoo, UCSC, if people yeah, don't know what we're talking about. Exactly. Like, I'm a banana slug. The greatest of all mascots. Yes, Let's talk a little bit about your name. Uh, you had mentioned before the interview when I was asking you the pronunciation, Nataraja, that this was not a name that you had given to yourself, as some might imagine, due to your work, but this was actually a name your parents gave you. So tell us about your upbringing. Yeah, I mean, a little more complicated than that. I was actually a product of the 60s generation. So I was raised in a Hindu community um, centered around an Indian teacher. And us kids being born were given Sanskrit names and raised in some sort of yogic lifestyle. So like you, I was, you know, I kind of was indoctrinated into yoga and kind of from my mom thought, yeah, it's kind of lame, ma. It's something that my mom does, but not that yeah. I want to do. <laughs> um, but, you know, not uncommon to many spiritual communities that fell apart, you know, due to kind of um, neglected psychological material and abuse and megalomania and kind of the teacher. And um, to make a long story short, I actually ended up in India for quite a few years where I rediscovered yoga more from a personal kind of passion and interest. Oh, wow. That sounds really intense. I'm sorry that happened. Well, you know, it's also, I think, just kind of a, a insightful 
glimpse into, you know, the nature of communities, but also kind of our human psyche and how much, you know, spiritual work can be undermined if it's not really grappling with kind of what's under the hood, you know, psychologically. Yeah, it sounds like some narcissism there. Mm -hmm. And that can, as we've seen, that can be so destructive. Absolutely, yeah. Now, when did you decide that yoga was for you? Because as you mentioned, you were like, oh, that's what my mom does. But when did it was like, <laughs> okay, wait a second, this is working for me. Well, you know, I was 18, the community had fallen apart, and mm. I found myself in Nepal. And, you know, I had a 30-day visa, but the three had smudged into an eight, so I had thought I had 80 days, which I only discovered was a mistake when I was 70 days into my trip. And as an 18-year-old, rather than you know, call my parents for help or explain it to the immigration authorities because there was quite a financial um, penalty for overstaying the visa that long. My first thought was, I'll just sneak out of Nepal. So I orchestrated this great escape from Nepal into India. I got caught, haggled my way out. <laughs> and so wow. actually arrived in India, not with some great noble aspiration to study yoga, but really to kind of extricate myself from a a legal <laughs> situation in Nepal, but nevertheless, um, you know, really encountered both um, kind of yogic and Buddhist traditions in a way that uh, I think, you know, just deeply impacted me and kind of became a lifelong uh, pursuit and passion. So I ended up spending much of the next kind of 15 years going back and forth between the United States and India really to study. And had the fortune to meet a number of, you know, I think very awake teachers that helped, you know, kind of deepen my own understanding and learning, which, you know, kind of in a circuitous way landed me at Naropa University, where uh, it's the only undergraduate yoga studies program we find. Now, how did those teachers, how did they in either inspire you or, or get you to see yoga in, in different ways that maybe you hadn't seen it or, or maybe even that you had, but kind of deepen that understanding? You know, I think for, for what really landed was, you know, the, the mentors I had that beyond, you know, the, the teachings took the time to really, you know, get to know me, you know, kind of see where my uh, shadows were those places I preferred to avoid or not engage within myself. So, really forced me to engage practice not um, as a means of escape, but to leave uh, nothing unturned, you know, no kind of facet of self uh, ignored. And of course, that journey is by no means done, but it did help me reorient to practice. Um, from uh, from a perspective of kind of uh, aspiring to include every facet of my human experience on the journey, kind of sobering realization that, you know, I only evolve as much as my kind of lesser function or those facets of self that I would prefer uh, <laughs> not be felt or seen. Now, did that help you with the I don't know if you'd say trauma or, or, or what happened with your community growing up. Well, I think it certainly helped me understand, you know, how either collectively in a community or individually we can be, you know, sabotaged by uh, failing to 
look at, you know, the, the full range of our human capacity and limitations. Yeah. You know, when I was talking about my experience growing up and I mentioned Raman on Patel, you, you kind of smiled and shook your head. Did mm-hmm. you have experience with him? Yeah. So I spent a lot of time in the Iyengar tradition, mm-hmm. uh, different teachers within the Iyengar tradition, not so much Ramanam Patel, but uh, Adil Palkiwala and Iyengar himself. Um, so I'm certainly uh, steeped in the Iyengar tradition. Now let's talk about Naropa University. Mm-hmm. I, I love on this site, it says Naropa Bachelor of Arts in Yoga Studies is more than a yoga teacher training and yoga certification program. Here you'll embrace yogic practice as a way of life, be transformed on and off the mat at the nation's first yoga university. It looks like it's so interesting. What makes it more, like it says, than, than just a yoga teacher and training? Well, people often ask, what is, what is this name Naropa? And I think it gives insight into kind of the DNA of Naropa, but it's actually drawn from uh, an 11th century figure who was a prodigious scholar and head of, at the time, the largest, most esteemed kind of university in Asia called Nalanda. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to make a long story short, he uh, had this chance encounter with a uh, wise old woman who we later learn is kind of the wisdom goddess in disguise you know, who essentially points out to Naropa that all of his prestigious learning and accomplishments, you know, amounted to diddly squat, as he didn't truly understand the real meaning of things, right? But just the words. And I think it was a testament to his aspiration that he left his position to set out um, to really understand what's what's the deal? I mean, what's really the, the heart of these teachings? And after an arduous outer and inner journey, he uh, attained some, you know, deep level of realization. So I think Naropa was, you know, the name chosen for this university because it uh, symbolizes kind of our aspiration to synthesize both intellect and heart, academic and experiential learning. So, of course, yoga studies is, you know, a great example of this because it's simultaneously a diverse history and uh, body of philosophies that really lends to academic study so we can really understand the history of these philosophies and not mangle history to make it something other than what it is. But it's also, of course, this incredibly rich uh, field of, you know, psycho spiritual somatic practices, um, as well as also intimating a state of being. So similarly, we engage the study from all three dimensions, you know, academic, practice, and experiential, trying to synthesize those together, which is, you know, some, somewhat taboo still in modern academia, that to study something, you need to remain, you know, uh, an objective outsider, lest you be biased or influenced by your own personal proclivities. Now, talk to us about the psychology, because today we're talking about working with intense emotions, and it's Mm -hmm. looking at it through your yoga, your background in yoga and psychology. Mm -hmm. How do those come together, and and how do they come together at Naropa? Um, I mean, psychology is certainly one of the largest programs, undergraduate and graduate, within Naropa. And it's certainly been two of my largest interests in my own background. done my graduate work in psychology and, of course, a lifelong study in, in yoga studies. Um, you know, I think, and just 
like kind of like panning out first, you know, human beings have had such a long conflicted relationship with emotions, you know, yeah. philosophers, theologians, even the pioneers of psychology have almost been kind of uniformly negative in their view of emotions. And, you know, basically these unfortunate forces that cause us to do irrational and regrettable things. <laughs> um, and, in, you know, like religion often viewed as our lower nature or the causes of our suffering, uh, which we have to subdue or eradicate. Um, so, you know, a lot of even early yoga and Buddhism, it was, they followed these kind of transcendental or ascetic, ascetic, not aesthetic, but ascetic arcs. You know, how do we extricate ourselves, you know, from these binds that torment us? Um, but I think, you know, whether you're in the domain of psychology or spirituality, it's as much as we'd often like to think we're Spock-like if we take a peek under the hood, you know, it's, wow, emotions motivate all of our behavior. And so accessing and reclaiming emotional, you know, intelligence is so important because, you know, for many of us, for whatever cultural or religious interjects we may have received, you know, kind of created this, inherent kind of lack of permission to feel our feelings or to work with them, you know, skillfully. Uh, and I mean, I'm sure none of your viewers, but self for sure, you know, get a little emotionally constipated at times, right? So, <laughs> yeah, because emotions get regulated by guilt or shame or avoidance, which inevitably creates like greater rigidity and takes all the more energy to defend or to not feel. But given that it's kind of the way we filter our experience, you know, these signals that give us such an important and immediate read as to the nature of our experience, this non-acceptance or avoidance causes us, you know, to lose access to this incredibly important uh, kind of range of intelligence, as well as, you know, means by which we might reclaim some sort of well-being. Yeah, you know, one thing that my husband and I have always taught my daughter, she's 17 now, actually my daughter, our daughter, mm -hmm. <laughs> is you, you just that emotions are okay and feel your emotions and talk about your emotions because you can't get around it. You got to go through it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I find so heartbreaking in this society is how often I'll see parents saying, especially to boys, you know, don't cry or even to girls, oh, just, you know, get over it, suck it up. I remember I had a neighbor and she told her two-year-old to build a bridge and get over it. And she's like chuckling with a friend. Right. They thought that was so clever. And I thought, this is just sad. Yeah. That whole other saying that I can't stand is you get what you get and you don't get upset. Right. I like you get what you get and you can be upset, but you're still just going to get that. Right. So if my kid's screaming for a toy in the store, it's, it's okay to be upset. I'm still not going to buy it for you, but it's okay to have your feelings. God, what an amazing society we would have yeah. if that was the model. We got. I wish we could change that paradigm. Hopefully, by talking about it, somebody will be like, "Oh, that is a better way." <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just thinking of some of the interjects we receive in this culture, like you know, boys don't cry or girls don't show anger. You know, that that kind of set up early on a, a, a rigid relationship of permission to feel and express some, but uh, negate others. Um, but even, you know, if, even if we look back kind of at human evolution, we see that certain emotional reactions have been highly conserved, you know, if we find them as present in our animal predecessors, you know, as we do us, it's probably intimating they, 
they're here for a reason, you know. Um, yeah. And even especially the ones we get, get such a bad reputation, you know, like fear. Without right. fear, we'd, you know, see a mountain lion and think, oh, maybe that looks like a, cud- a cuddly creature. <laughs> I'd be remiss to remind us not to cuddle with mountain lions. But, you know, so, you know, that in their in their core, these emotions are here to help kind of like move us towards thriving and surviving, right? Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate news if, you know, we were under the impression that if we just made all the right decisions and or took the right food or did the right practices or kind of psychological uh, affirmations that we'd feel good all the time, um, which is kind of ubiquitous across the spectrum of psychological right. and religious and spiritual uh, traditions, but it would be like if uh, you know you had a compass and you just put the magnet on west, like bliss, all the time. You know, you'd lose range to so many of the other important facets of our experience that help kind of direct us. You know, um, kind of intelligently. Right. I think you know all the kind of the biological and evolutionary background of emotions kind of just leads to that big conclusion you're saying would be what a great idea to you know accept our emotions you know reclaim kind of this incredibly important field of our experience yeah i want to let you and the listeners know i did confront this woman didn't go well (laughs) (laughs) i she was not a nice person we ended up moving actually but at Mm -hmm. any rate yeah, I'm one of those people, like, I, I take action, even though I know most parents don't want you to tell them how to parent, right? But I just felt like, you know, maybe if you try this, you know, no, don't be judgy or mean about it. But like, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard, but active listening is really cool, you know? And she's like, shut up. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I, but I feel like we yeah, have to try. I have, two, I have two young daughters, you know, and so... I, one, I have the sobering, you know, experience of how, you know, little kids are like sponges. They, they so mirror the way that we process emotion and sensation. They kind of like lap that up. So, um, but also just still being quite young, just how emotions just kind of rise and they make no sense to me at times, but also dissipate with such ease and right. lack of, you know, inhibition. And it's quite uh, inspiring uh, to see that. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uninhibited, you know, yeah. kind of upswelling and release and movement on to the next emotional experience. Yeah. yeah rather than just packing it all in, packing it not, all in. not dealing with <laughs> it. You know, one thing that really helped me, uh, it's called bioenergetic therapy and, and, I probably won't be able to explain it super well, but what, what what did for me was I was able to get deeper into my grief and pain and loss and trauma by getting in different positions in my body that would open me up. But they were also kind of uncomfortable, but it was like the combination that really allowed me to just feel in such a deep way and to release in a way that I hadn't experienced. You know, I guess it was about probably... 20 years maybe after my mother had passed and I, I had cried, of you know, but I didn't really feel the intensity until I started doing bioenergetic therapy. And I literally one day in, in therapy, I fell to the ground. I was crying like it was amazing. And I felt like this weight. 
is the grief all gone? No. Is it still hard? Yes. But it, it was this thing that I needed to do. Mm. And I'm wondering if there's any sort of yoga or yogic poses have you found that help people go deeper? Or is that like a different kind of thing? I, I just I think body work with emotions is so powerful. Well, I think, yeah, you just touched on such an important point. It's just first the appreciation that emotions are bodily events. They're yes. somatic events. You know, they happen in and as bodily sensation, which gives us a big, I think, clue in how to work with them. Um, so we see that in, you know, the yoga tradition, um, there's been quite a range of the way that emotions have been viewed and worked with. But I think of, of particular interest, um, one of the later advents of yoga was was the tantra and which kind of had this reorientation towards our human experience that reflected more of an acceptance of its of the full range of our human existence if not even an indirect route to kind of evolution or spiritual awakening uh, which is kind of a counterpoint to some of its ascetic predecessors um, that sought more to how to how do we un extricate ourselves from all of this experience and you know in in very general terms but you know tantra in some ways is allied with the alchemical traditions of the world alchemy coming from this arabic word alchemet which means you know the dark earth and you know early alchemists who took it literally you know they sought all over the world for this this rich material that if brought through a precise series of uh, sequences could turn something not valuable into something very valuable, gold, for example. But, you know, the yogis, I think, took it more as metaphoric, right? Mm-hmm. That the that dark earth is nothing other than, I don't know, the other day my, my sink was plugged, so I had to go turn off the water and go under and undo my U-trap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you ever cleaned out your U-trap, what you get is like, Ah, it makes most people, <laughs> makes most of us cringe, right? And a sludge monster, right? We'd like to avoid that or not have to work with it. But you know, of course, you know it's kind of psychologically that's kind of the richest material in some ways. Right. So, um, how do we work with uh, particularly that dimension of our experience that is the most tenacious, that does create the greatest battle within us? Uh, in a way that we might actually even access kind of the wisdom energy within it. Uh, Sally Kempton likened these heavy, afflictive emotions to like dragons, right? Mm -hmm. If dragons are often those fire-breathing creatures that hoard treasure, that treasure being like our vitality, our life force, that if we try and slay the dragon, it breathes fire and destroys us. But if we don't engage the dragon, then it just continues to hoard our treasure and so, like, dragons are like those heavy-duty core emotions, you know, grief or jealousy or rage or, or self-loathing or inadequacy um, or numbness. Um, so, we find kind of in this more later development of yoga, kind of, I think, insightful ways of working with this... Uh, kind of most afflictive dimension of our human experience. And one of the first steps is first the view, like we were talking about, is, you know, not to fear them, not to avoid them. Can we see 
you know, these storms inside of us, like we would witness storms outside of us with some sort of appreciation or even wonderment. So not to take them so personally, um, realizing, oh, they have no one to afflict, you know, like an outer storm, that they're just raw expressions of our own kind of life force. And maybe even further become curious about them, you know, to turn towards them. Um, Because so often, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive to turn towards those experiences we most would like not to feel. We bounce off of them, moving into hyperthinking or, you know, uh, whatever avenue of distraction. So I think the first step is just turning, you know, kind of a view like, oh, okay, let's uh, get interested. Let's get curious about this. And then I think the next gesture is like, like the mountain lion, neither or a good judo practitioner, Aikido practitioner to offer no resistance, but also not try and battle or get rid of it. Um, my daughter, you know, she was, uh, had learned this song from a local uh, group called Jeff and Page who sing songs about the natural world and what you do if you see a wild animal like a mountain lion or bear, which is, you know, stop, get big. You're not on the bear's menu, right? So she, she encountered a bear, a mama bear the other day, oh and goodness. she remembered the song. So rather than run, of course, she wasn't going to attack it. She just stopped, took a breath. Right. And then slowly, slowly moved back. And it's like, oh, wow, you remembered that. I don't even know if I would have the wherewithal to remember that. Um, but so similarly, in, in, in when those emotions arise, um, to pause, to not uh, offer opposition or try and get rid of. But then I think, as you were pointing out, then the real heart of the practice is learning to feel to immerse yourself right in the heart of the sensation. And, you know, quite often when we actually allow ourselves to feel the sensation in a very somatic way, sometimes it gets bigger at first, right? Because you're really feeling it for what it is. Um, But rather than getting kind of pulled into the story, you know, staying with the felt sense and maybe, you know, rather than even naming it sadness, it's like, oh, heavy sensation in my, in my chest or face, tenderness in my heart. Um, and finding some sort of presence right in the heart of the sensation. And, you know, kind of the ego is the tendency to hold on to ourselves and control our experience. Learning to feel is like, kind of like threatens our agenda to always control mm-hmm. our experience, right? Because mm-hmm. if we right. open if we open to our sorrow or whatever it may be, though it might intensify for a while, it starts to, in a sense, crack that tendency to always control our experience and kind of indirectly actually becomes an avenue to greater aliveness and if not even uh, empathy and realizing, oh, this is, this is our human condition in a shared way. So birthing greater capacity for compassion right oh yeah and then you know i think it's quite it's a kind of a quite common experience in this practice that as we as we stay in the heart of the sensation what felt so fixed and so solid right like anger or grief actually begins to kind of unknot itself a little bit begins to free itself from the body and you know, eventually reveal itself to be nothing other than sensation. No different 
though in quality different, but nothing just as joy has since is nothing but, you know, these waves of sensation through the body. So is grief. So is anger, right? So it's in a sense kind of freeing the emotional body to uh, be unrestricted, right? Uninhibited and in, and in the deeper potentiality, even reveal that deeper dimension of being, you know, in which they're continuously playing, rising and dissolving. How do you think having a, a regular yoga practice, it obviously, you know, helps your body. We hear about the yoga mm-hmm. arms. And I live in a town where you see a lot of women just coming from yoga and they're super fit. But I wonder, like, what's going on inside? Or Well, you know, I, th- I find that, you know, whatever whatever gets us in the door, <laughs> maybe it's the <laughs> washboard abs and buns of steel, but quite sure. often what happens is, in just working, you know, just like in terms of postural practice or asana practice, you know, I think the one of the central axioms upon which yoga is centered is just appreciating the interplay of mind and body. In Sanskrit, it's the play of prana or life force, which is everything from the most dense and accessible expression of uh life force to, you know, feelings and thoughts and emotions and sensations and chitta or, or consciousness, mind. And the two are like likened to fish that swim in tandem as one moves, the other follows. Mm-hmm. So every thought and feeling we have creates a pattern of sensation in the body. So when we affect change in our mind, there's a reciprocal uh, qualitative shift in our soma, our bodies, And conversely, when we work with the body in intelligent ways, and especially that are rooted in, you know, feeling again versus just trying to achieve some, you know, displaced shape from what is our current condition, right? Um, Then as we find more kind of presence and wakefulness in the body, the mind also begins to find a little more presence, a little more uh, ease, so even if we come in just through the body door of, you know, trying to find health, quite often it affects our quality of attention and mind and presence. And, you know, eventually we get curious, like, oh, what's more to yoga? Oh, well, it's actually this incredibly rich, you know, tradition that looks into the nature of our minds and hearts, you know, the causes are our suffering and the, the means to kind of finding true, you know, insight and happiness and wisdom. Yeah. Wow. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about Naropa University. So if, because I have a friend who wants to go back and, you know, get their certificate to teach yoga, and there's all kinds of programs. What would you say would be the difference with that versus what they would get at Naropa? We're just fortunate to be able to study within a uh, university context that allows right. us to really dive into the breadth and depth of the tradition in in you know a few years we have the time to kind of both chronologically study yoga from its earliest inception to kind of modern day uh, iterations as well as kind of the diverse range of practices and views and philosophies um, while also culminating in uh, a deep study and how do we skillfully and authentically communicate these traditions and practices right. for those that have really committed to, you know, this study. So it, just having the time to, to give to the 
depth and breadth of study that yoga really requires given its kind of vast tradition, I think is, is something that's just fortunate, um, uh, ability that we have at Naropa because we have the time and quite a few, you know, some 36 credits of, uh, study that wow. cover the philosophy, the history, the language, as well as the practice, as well as, um, kind of teacher training skills. And how long did you say the program is? It takes a couple years. Yeah, it's a couple-year program, yeah. That okay. can either be done as a degree program itself or as a part of another degree program. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what I was curious about. So if somebody already comes in and they have a college degree, but they just they want to study the yoga, that's still a couple more years, right, of doing yeah, the so full? Okay. You, it's also a certificate program for those that already have a degree. They can just do the yoga. Oh, um, okay. Studies program, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, I should mention that I did get back into yoga when I was pregnant. I did it every day of my pregnancy and it made it so much easier. And I still had a hard time. <laughs> I was not a happy pregnant person. I mean, I just, my back hurt and I, I, I only gained 20 pounds and then I lost two because like I had the really bad, re- anyway, I won't get into it. But the point is that that yoga really helped. I think, gosh, imagine if I hadn't been doing it, but I kind of fell off the wagon after I had my daughter, <laughs> but now I've been doing Pilates for about 10 years. I just mm-hmm. love it. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking of incorporating some yoga back in, but I think if you can find something that I, I get really mindful in Pilates because there's little movements and, and you have to really focus. And I think when you can find something that gets you in that mindfulness state, that's what's so key. Well, again, you know, it's not exclusive to asana. It's like whatever somatic practice, you know, that really sure. grounds us in this kind of wonderful, rich landscape of sensation. It can be, it can be an exquisite journey. So I do a show called Active Allyship. It's more than a hashtag mm-hmm. on anti-racism, bias, white privilege, white comfort, and really getting white people to look at their own biases and, you know, oh, I'm not racist. Well, we're all raised in this society. So let's mm-hmm. look at the different levels of bias or racism that we have. Let's overcome it. Let's, you know, make the world better. We talk about cultural appropriation. My daughter is constantly saying to me, mom, I saw this video and there was white people with Native American makeup on. That seems really bad. That's appropriation, right? Or mom, I saw this white person and they had this. She's like, her, she's always asking me. I said, yeah, it is. And she said, well, what about people, white people doing yoga? And, and how does that work? And is that appropriation or how, you know? And I was like, huh, I'm going to ask Nataraja because I think you should be able to do yoga, right? I think it, if, if you were like, I created this and made it up, well, that's one thing. But if you're giving the acknowledgement to the people who created it, how, how do you see this? I mean, it's it's such a, an important and rich area of study, you know, because inevitably, whenever traditions travel, um, they're influenced by the kind of the values um, of the cultures that they arrive in. And right. so we see this in all traditions and yoga no less. So I think this has led to uh, a whole range of in of adaptation, some that certainly falls into, you know, appropriation and commercialization right. and kind of uh, a complete whitewashing of the tradition and repackaging it in a way that divorces itself from its roots um, in meaningful in the roots that are incredibly meaningful and central to what has been at the heart of the tradition. Um, And simultaneously, sometimes it's, you know, is one of the founding kind of adages at Naropa is that when East West meets sparks will fly. 
also in kind of these cultural kind of interfaces, there's a lot of important dialogue that happens, a lot of questions that are asked that may have not been asked kind of in the culture of origin. So, you know, I think it's, it's a um, kind of a broad spectrum that really needs to be uh, seen and approached with open eyes so that we can shift from kind of uh, unaware appropriation to cultural appreciation. Right where we can uh, understand and apply and investigate kind of the heart of this tradition in a way that doesn't divorce it from its roots or repackage it in ways that are convenient or worse, you know, kind of lend to our most base kind of commercialization. Right. Um, and so we see that uh, kind of very foregrounded these days, there is no doubt. Is there anything that we didn't touch on, Nataraja, that you wanted to make sure we touch on today? I just feel, you know, regarding kind of like the practice we touched on uh, in terms of turning towards our experience, like especially afflictive emotions, that I think two things just it would be remiss not to mention that one, it's uh, not necessarily the best practice if we're if one is dealing with real trauma, that to go right into the heart of a very intense experience can actually, it's like being in ocean waves that you are confident you can surf versus being in a tsunami that crushes you. So there's, of course, incredible insight in somatic psychology of how you work at a somatic level with trauma, but might not uh, be skillful to go right into the heart of it as it can actually increase it or exasperate it. Right. So uh, with that, you know, it's really useful to practice in the good times. Just like if you have diarrhea, it's not the time to build a toilet. You, you know, you would, <laughs> you would have wanted to do that ahead of time. So That's if great. we, you know, if we just take those moments throughout the day when you know, it's like a little anxiety or a little like inadequacy or a little self-loathing or tension to drop in, to feel, to locate in body, um, to stay with. Um, to offer no opposition, then what often happens is, you know, a resiliency begins to grow where when the bigger waves come, we kind of have a wherewithal not to bounce off, not to avoid, but, oh, I can, I can do this. Yeah. So rather than like one heroic practice is like just finding these moments throughout the day, almost like these kind of mini meditations where we just learn to return, to feel, to turn towards and, uh, you know, in a sense, re-embody. This has been wonderful. How do we learn more about you and then also more about Naropa University? Oh, uh, yeah, please come find come find us. Check us out uh, on the website, naropa.edu. Um, you know, a whole range of undergraduate and graduate programs, um, primarily in psychology and yoga studies and uh, environmental studies, Um and uh, we have, the, of course, the legendary Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics as well. So, Ooh, incredible writing program. Cool. Uh, yeah. So, just a wonderful range of offerings. Well, also, and I should mention, we're, we're also in the process of launching many online programs now. Oh, um, wonderful. Even before COVID, we'd started this process. And now, so much of learning has moved to remote online learning. So, our yoga studies programs, our psychology programs are also offering online opportunities as well. Oh, that's yeah. terrific. 
Well, you've been great. I've, it's been such a pleasure having you on, Nataraj. I really appreciate it. Do you have your own uh, handle or are you on social media at all? Um, I, me and social media still have, you know, are strange bedfellows. So I, <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. Yes, I do have some social on Facebook and uh, and you'll find a link through Naropa as well. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Well, this has been lovely. Thank you so much for coming on Talk Healthy today. I really appreciate it. Oh, so so lovely to speak with you, Lisa. I really appreciate it too. This podcast is lovingly sponsored by Naropa University. Since 1974, Naropa faculty have been helping students develop their inner awareness and heart-centered motivations. If you or someone you know wants to live a purpose-driven, embodied life in order to change the world, go to naropa.edu. You are ready for Naropa, where experiential learning meets academic rigor, and we are ready for you. Naropa.edu. Thank you so much for listening to Talk Healthy Today. Please do rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And also, if you want some behind the scenes on Talk Healthy Today or a chance monthly to win my book, Clean Eating Dirty Sex, which is a memoir, cookbook, healthy lifestyle guide, it's the title is just a play on words, please go to www.lisadavismph.com. Sign up for my newsletter. And once a month, you'll be getting some great information as well as being entered into a contest to win my book. So again, go to www.lisadavismph.com. Get more on Talk Healthy Today and keep coming back. There's always great information. Thank you.